5, and would row no farther, the others knew not where we were, so we put towards the shore, got into a creek, landed near an old fence, with the rails of which we made a fire, the night being cold, in October, and there we remained till daylight, then one of the company knew the place to be Cooper's Creek, a little above Philadelphia, which we saw as soon as we got out of the creek, and arrived there about eight or nine o'clock on the Sunday morning, and landed at Market Street Wharf. The closing portion of this Nicola Knight narrative is as interesting in its way as the opening. The idea that Philadelphia could be passed in the darkness and not discovered seems almost ludicrous when we consider its present many miles of riverfront, and the long drawn-out glow of illumination which it casts across the stream. Nothing could be more indicative of its village-like condition at the time of Franklin's arrival, and its enormous growth since. Nor are the incidents and conditions of the journey less striking. The traveler, making the best time possible to him, had been nearly five full days on the way, and had experienced a succession of hardships which would have thrown many men into a sick bed at the end. It took youth, health, and energy to accomplish the difficult passage from New York to Philadelphia in that day, a journey which we now make between breakfast and dinner, with considerable time for business in the interval. Verily, the world moves. But to return to our traveler's story, I have been the more particular in this description of my journey, and shall be so of my first entry into that city, that you may in your mind compare such unlikely beginnings with the figure I have since made there. I was in my working dress, my best clothes coming round by sea. I was dirty from my being so long in the boat. My pockets were stuffed out with shirts and stockings, and I knew no one, nor where to look for lodging, fatigued with walking, rowing and the want of sleep. I was very hungry, and my whole stock of cash consisted in a single dollar, and about a shilling in copper coin, which I gave to the boatmen for my passage. At first they refused it, on account of my having rowed, but I insisted on their taking it. Man is sometimes more generous when he has little money than when he has plenty, perhaps to prevent his being thought to have but little. I walked towards the top of the street, gazing about till near Market Street, where I met a boy with bread. I had often made a meal of dry bread, and, inquiring where he had bought it, I went immediately to the baker's he directed me to. I asked for biscuits, meaning such as we had at Boston, that sort, it seems, was not made in Philadelphia. I then asked for a three-penny loaf, and was told they had none, not knowing the different prices, nor the names of the different sorts of bread. I told him to give me three-penny worth of any sort. He gave me, accordingly three great puffy rolls, I was surprised at the quantity, but took it, and having no room in my pockets, walked off with a roll under each arm, and eating the other, thus I went up Market Street as far as 4th Street, passing by the door of Mr. Red, my future wife's father, when she, standing at the door, saw me, and thought I made, as I certainly did, a most awkward, ridiculous appearance, then I turned and went down Chestnut Street, and part of Walnut Street, eating my roll all the way, and, coming round, found myself again at Market Street Wharf, near the boat I came into which I went for a draught of the river water, and, being filled with one of my rolls, gave the other two to a woman and her child that came down the river in the boat with us, and were waiting to go farther, thus refreshed, I walked again up the street, which by this time had many cleanly dressed people in it, who were all walking the same way, I joined them, and was thereby led into the great meeting house of the Quakers, near the market, I sat down among them, and, after looking round a while and hearing nothing said, 
became very drowsy through labor and want of rest the preceding night. I fell fast asleep, and continued so till the meeting broke up, when someone was kind enough to arouse me. This, therefore, was the first house I was in or slept in in Philadelphia. There is nothing more simple, homely, and attractive in literature than Franklin's autobiographical account of the first period of his life, of which we have transcribed a portion nor nothing more indicative of the great changes which time has produced in the conditions of this country, and which it produced in the life of our author. As for his journey from New York to Philadelphia, it presents, for the time involved, as great a series of adventures and hardships as does Stanley's recent journey through Central Africa, and as regards his own history, the contrast between the Franklin of 1723 and 1783 was as great as that which has come upon the city of his adoption. There is something amusingly ludicrous in the picture of the great Franklin, soiled with travel, a dollar in his pocket representing his entire wealth, walking up Market Street with two great rolls of bread under his arms and gnawing hungrily at a third, while his future wife peers from her door, and laughs to herself at this awkward youth, who looked as if he had never set foot on City Street before. We can hardly imagine this to be the Franklin who afterwards became the associate of the great and the admired of nations who argued the cause of America before the assembled notables of England, who played a leading part in the formation of the Constitution of the United States, and to whom Philadelphia owes several of its most thriving and full institutions. Millions of people have since poured into the city of brotherly love, but certainly no other journey thither has been nearly so momentous in its consequences as the humble one above described, the perils of the wilderness. On the 31st day of October, in the year 1753, a young man, whose name was as yet unknown outside the colony of Virginia, though it was destined to attain worldwide fame, set out from Williamsburg, in that colony, on a momentous errand. It was the first step taken in a series of events which were to end in driving the French from North America, and placing this great realm under English control, the opening movement in the memorable French and Indian War. The name of the young man was George Washington. His age was 21 years. He began thus, in his earliest manhood, that work in the service of his country which was to continue until the end. The enterprise before the young Virginian was one that needed the energies of youth and the unyielding perseverance of an indefatigable spirit. A wilderness extended far and wide before him, partly broken in Virginia, but farther on and touched by the hand of civilization. Much of his route lay over rugged mountains, pathless save by the narrow and difficult Indian trails. The whole distance to be traversed was not less than 560 miles with an equal distance to a return. The season was winter. It was a task calculated to try the powers and test the endurance of the strongest and most energetic man. The contest between France and England for American soil was about to begin. Hitherto the colonists of those nations had kept far asunder. The French in Canada and on the Great Lakes, the English on the Atlantic coast. Now the English were feeling their way westward, the French southward. Lines of movement which would touch each other on the Ohio. The touch, when made, was sure to be a hostile one. England had established an Ohio company, ostensibly for trade, really for conquest. The French had built forts, one at Presque on Lake Erie, one on French Creek, near its headwaters, a third at the junction of French Creek with the Allegheny. This was a bold push inland. They had done more than this. A party of French and Indians had made their way as far as the point where Pittsburgh now stands. Here they found some English traders, took them prisoners, and conveyed them to Presque Isle. In response to this, 
Some French traders were seized by the Twaitwee Indians, a tribe friendly to the English, and sent to Pennsylvania. The touch had taken place, and it was a hostile one. Major Washington V. had been a Virginian adjutant general, with the rank of major, since the age of 19 was chosen for the next step, that of visiting the French forts and demanding the withdrawal of their garrisons from what was claimed to be English territory. The mission was a delicate one. It demanded courage, discretion, and energy. Washington had them all. No better choice could have been made than of this young officer of militia. The youthful pioneer proceeded alone as far as Fredericksburg. Here he engaged two companions, one as French, the other as Indian, interpreter, and proceeded. Civilization had touched the region before him, but not subdued it. At the junction of Wills Creek with the Potomac now Cumberland, Maryland, he reached the extreme outpost of civilization. Before him stretched more than 400 miles of unbroken wilderness. The snow-covered Alleghenies were just in advance. The chill of the coming winter already was making itself felt. Recent rains had swollen the streams. They could be crossed only on log rafts, or by the more primitive methods of wading or swimming. Expedients none too agreeable in freezing weather. But youth and a lofty spirit halt not for obstacles. Washington pushed on. At Wills Creek he added to his party. Here he was joined by Mr. Gist, an experienced frontiersman, who knew well the ways of the wilderness, and by four other persons, two of them Indian traders. On November 14th the journey was resumed. Hardships now surrounded the little party of adventurers. Miles of rough mountain had to be climbed, streams, swollen to their limits, to be crossed, and broken and interminable forests to be traversed. Day after day they pressed onward, through difficulties that would have deterred all but the hardiest and most vigorous of men. In ten days they had accomplished an important section of their journey, and reached those forks of the Ohio which were afterwards to attain such celebrity both in war and peace as the site of Fort Duquesne and of the subsequent city of Pittsburgh. Twenty miles farther on the Indian settlement of Logstown was reached. Here Washington called the Indian chiefs together in conference. The leading chief was known as Tanakuri Sun Half King, an Indian patriot, who had been much disturbed by the French and English incursions. He had been to the French forts. What he had said to their commanders is curious, and worthy of being quoted, Fathers, I am come to tell you your own speeches, what your own mouths have declared. Fathers, you in former days set a silver basin before us, wherein was the leg of a beaver, and desired all the nations to come and eat of it, to eat in peace and plenty, and not to be churlish to one another, and that, if any person should be found to be a disturber, I here lay down by the edge of the dish a rod, which you must scourge them with, and if your father should get foolish in my old days, I desire you may use it upon me as well as others. Now, fathers, it is you who are the disturbers in this land, by coming and building your towns, and taking it away unknown to us, and by force. Fathers, I desire you may hear me in civilness, if not, we must handle that rod which was laid down for the use of the obstreperous. Fathers, both you and the English are white, we live in a country between, therefore, the land belongs to neither one nor the other, the great being above allowed it to be a place of residence for us, so, fathers. I desire you to withdraw, as I have done our brothers the English, for I will keep you at arm's length. I lay this down as a trial for both, to see which will have the greatest regard for it, and that side we will stand by, and make equal sharers with us. Our brothers, the English, have heard this, and I now come to tell it to you, for I am not afraid to discharge you off this land. 
the poor halfkin was to find that he had undertaken a task like that of discharging the wolves out of the sheepcoat. The French heard his protest with contempt, and went on building their forts. He thereupon turned to the English, who he, in the simplicity of his heart, imagined had no purpose save that of peaceful trade. His fathers had contemned him, to his brothers he turned in enmity. Washington told his purposes to his dusky auditors. He had come to warn the French intruders off the Indian lands. He desired a guide to conduct him to the French fort, 120 miles distant. His statement pleased the Indians. Their English brothers were in sympathy with them. They would help them to recover their lands. The generosity of their white brothers must have seemed highly meritorious to the simple savages. They had yet to learn that the French and the English were the two millstones, and they and their lands the corn to be ground between. The half-king, with two other chiefs Jeskycock and White Thunder by name, volunteered to guide the whites. A hunter of noted skill also joined them. Once more the expedition set out. The journey was a terrible one. Winter had set in, rain and snow fell almost unceasingly, the forest was next to impassable, great were their toils, severe their hardships. On December 5th they reached the French outpost at Vimongo now Franklin, where French Creek joins the Allegheny. Here they were met by Captain John Kerr, the French commandant, with a promising show of civility, secretly. However, the astute Frenchman sought to rob Washington of his Indians. Fortunately, the Aborigines knew the French too well to be cajoled, and were ready to accompany Washington when he set out on his remaining journey. Their route now led up French Creek to Fort Elbeuf. On the headwaters of that stream, this they reached on the 12th, after a wearisome experience of frontier travel. Forty-one days had passed since Washington left Williamsburg. The commandant here was M. de St. Pierre, an elderly man, of courteous manners, a knight of the Order of St. Louis. He received Washington cordially, treated him with every hospitality while in the fort, did everything except to comply with Governor Dinwiddie's order to leave the works. Washington's instruction were conveyed in a letter from the governor of Virginia, which asserted that the lands of the Ohio and its tributaries belonged to England, declared that the French movements were encroachments, asked by whose authority an armed force had crossed the lakes, and demanded their speedy departure from English territory. St. Pierre's reply was given in a sealed letter. It declared that he was a soldier, his duty being to obey orders, not to discuss treaties. He was there under instructions from the governor of Canada. Here he meant to stay. Such was the purport of the communication. The tone was courteous, but in it was no shadow of turning. While the Frenchman was using the pen, Washington was using his eyes. He went away with an accurate mental picture of the fort, its form, size, construction, location, and the details of its armament. His men counted the canoes in the river. The fort lay about 15 miles south of Lake Erie. A plan of it, drawn by Washington, was sent to England at the time fixed for their return. Washington found the snow falling so fast that he decided to make his journey to Vimongo by canoe. The horses, which they had used in the outward journey, being forwarded through the forest with their baggage, St. Pierre was civil to the last. He was as hospitable as polite. The canoe was plentifully stocked with provisions and liquors, but secretly artifices were practiced to lure away the Indians. The halfkin was a man whose friendship was worth bidding for. Promises were made, present were given, the Indians were offered every advantage of friendship and trade, but the halfkin was not to be placated by fine words, he knew the French, delay was occasioned, however, of which Washington complained, and hinted at the cause, you are certainly mistaken, 
Major Washington, declared the polite Frenchman, nothing of the kind has come to my knowledge, I really cannot tell why the Indians delay, they are naturally inclined to procrastinate, you know, certainly, everything shall be done on my part to get you off in good time, finally, the Indians proving immovable in their decision, the party got off, the journey before them was no pleasure one, even with the advantage of a water route, and a canoe as a vehicle of travel, rocks and drifting trees obstructed the channel, here were shallows, there, dangerous currents, the passage was slow and wearisome, and not without its perils, many times, says Washington, all hands were obliged to get out, and remain in the water half an hour or more in getting over the shoals, at one place the ice had lodged and made it impassable by water, and we were obliged to carry our canoe across a neck of land a quarter of a mile over, in six days they reached Vinongo, having journeyed 130 miles by the course of the stream, the horses had preceded them, but had reached the fort in so pitiable a condition as to render them hardly fit to carry the baggage and provisions, Washington, Mr. Gist, and Mr. Van Brom, the French interpreter, clad in Indian walking costume, proceeded on foot, the horses following with their drivers, after three days journey the poor animals had become so feeble, the snow so deep, the cold so severe, that Washington and just determined to push forward alone, leaving Mr. Van Brom as leader of the remainder of the party, gun in hand, and knapsack containing his food and papers on back, the intrepid explorer pushed forward with his companion, who was similarly equipped, leaving the path they had been following, they struck into a straight trail through the woods, purposing to reach the Allegheny a few miles above the Ohio, the journey proved an adventurous one, they met an Indian, who agreed to go with them and show them the nearest way, ten or twelve miles were traversed, at the end of which Washington grew very footsore and weary, the Indian had carried his knapsack, and now wished to relieve him of his gun, this Washington refused, whereupon the savage grew surly, he pressed them to keep on, however, saying that there were Ottawa Indians in the forest, who might discover and scalp them if they lay out at night, by going on they would reach his cabin and be safe, they advanced several miles farther, then the Indian, who had fallen behind them, suddenly stopped, on looking back they perceived that he had raised his gun, and was aiming at them, the next instant the piece was discharged, are you shot, cried Washington, Mumber answered just, after this fellow, then, the Indian had run to the shelter of a large white oak, behind which he was loading as fast as possible, the others were quickly upon him, just with his gun at his shoulder, do not shoot, said Washington, we had best not kill the man, but we must take care of him, the savage was permitted to finish his loading, even to putting in a ball, but his companions took good heed to give him no further opportunity to play the traitor, at a little run which they soon reached they bade the Indian to make a fire, on pretense that they would sleep there, they had no such intention, however, as you will not have him killed, said Just, we must get him away, and then we must travel all night, Just turned to the Indian, I suppose you were lost, and fired your gun, he said, with a transparent affectation of innocence, I know the way to my cabin, replied the Indian, it is not far away, well, then, do you go home, we are tired, but we'll follow your track in the morning, here is a cake of bread for you, and you must give us meat in the morning, the savage was glad enough to get away, just followed and listened, that he might not steal back on them, then they went half a mile farther, where they made a fire, set their compass, and, after a short period of rest, 
took to the route again and traveled all night. The next night they reached the Allegheny. Here they were destined to experience a dangerous adventure. They had expected to cross on the ice, but the river proved to be frozen only for a short distance from the shores. That night they slept with the snow for a bed, their blankets for a covering. When dawn appeared the same dubious prospect confronted them. The current of the river still swept past, loaded with broken ice. There is nothing for it but a raft, said Washington, and we have but one hatchet to aid us in making it. Let us to a work. To a work they fell, but it was sunset before the raft was completed. Not caring to spend another night where they were, they launched the raft and pushed from shore. It proved a perilous journey. Before the stream was half crossed they were so jammed in the floating ice that it seemed every moment as if their frail support would sink, and they perish in the swift current. Washington tried with his setting pole to stop the raft and let the ice run by. His effort ended unfortunately. Such was the strength of the current that the ice was driven against the pole with a violence that swept him from his feet and hurled him into a water ten feet deep. Only that chance which seems the work of destiny saved him. He fell near enough to the raft to seize one of its logs, and after a sharp scramble was up again, though dripping with icy water, they continued their efforts, but failed to reach either shore, and in the end they were obliged to spring from their weak support to an island, past which the current was sweeping the raft. The escape was almost like the proverbial one, from the frying pan to the fire. The island was destitute of shelter. As the night advanced the air grew colder, and the adventurers suffered severely. Mr. Just had his hands and feet frozen, a disaster which Washington, despite his wedding, fortunately escaped. The morning dawned at length, hope returned to their hearts, the cold of the night had done one service, it had frozen the water between the island and the eastern bank of the stream, the ice bore their weight, they crossed in safety, and the same day reached a trading post, recently formed, near the ground subsequently to be celebrated as that of Braddock's defeat. Here they rested two or three days, just recovering from the effects of his freezing, Washington improving the opportunity to pay a visit to Queen Aliquippa, an Indian princess, whose palace if we may venture to call it so was nearby. The royal lady had been angry that he had neglected her on his way out. This visit, an apology, and a present healed her wounded feelings, and disposed her to a gracious reception. Nothing could be learned of Van Brom and the remainder of the party. Washington could not wait for them. He hurried forward with just, crossed the Alleghenies to a Wills Creek, and, leaving his companion there, hastened onward to a Williamsburg. Anxious to put his dispatches in Governor Dinwiddie's hands, he reached there on January 16th, having been absent 11 weeks, during which he had traversed a distance of 1100 miles. What followed is matter of common history. Dinwiddie was incensed at Street Pier's letter. The French had come to stay, that was plain. If the English wanted a footing in the land they must be on the alert. A party was quickly sent to the Ohio Forks to build a fort, Washington having suggested this as a suitable plan. But hardly was this fort begun before it was captured by the French, who hastened to erect one for themselves on the spot. Washington, advancing with a supporting force, met a French detachment in the woods, which he attacked and defeated. It was the opening contest of the French and Indian War. As for Fort Duquesne which the French had built. It gave rise to the most disastrous event of the war, the defeat of General Braddock and his army, on their march to capture it. It continued in French hands till near the end of the war, its final capture by Washington being nearly the closing event in the contest which wrested from the hands of the French all their possessions on the American continent. Some adventures of Major Putnam, 
the vicinity of the mountain girdled, island dotted, tourist inviting Lake George has perhaps been the scene of more of the romance of war than any other locality that could be named, Fort Ticonderoga, on the ridge between that beautiful sheet of water and Lake Champlaine, is a point vital with stirring memories, among which the striking exploit of Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain Boys is of imperishable interest, Fort William Henry, at the lower end of Lake George is memorable as the locality of one of the most nerve-shaking examples of Indian treachery and barbarity, a scene which Cooper's fruitful pen has brought well within the kingdom of romance, the history of the whole vicinity, in short, is laden with picturesque incident, and the details of fact never approached those of romantic fiction more closely than in the annals of this interesting region, Israel Putnam, best known to us as one of the most daring heroes of the revolution, began here his career, in the French and Indian War as scout and ranger, and of no American frontiersman can a more exciting series of adventures be told. Some of these adventures it is our purpose here to give. After the Fort William Henry massacre, the American forces were concentrated in Fort Edward, on the headwaters of the Hudson, Putnam, with his corps of rangers, occupying an outpost station, on a small island near the fort, fearing a hostile visit from the victorious French. The commander, General Lyman, made all haste to strengthen his defenses, sending a party of a hundred and fifty men into the neighboring forest to cut timber for that purpose. Captain Little, with fifty British regulars, was deputized to protect these men at their labors. This supporting party was posted on a narrow ridge leading to the fort, with a morass on one side, a creek on the other, and the forest in front. One morning, at daybreak, a sentinel who stood on the edge of the morass, overlooking the dense thicket which filled its depths, was surprised at what seemed to him, in the hazy light, a flight of strange birds coming from the leafy hollow, one after another of these winged objects passed over his head, after he had observed them a moment or two, he saw one of them strike a neighboring tree, and cling quivering to its trunk, a glance was enough for the drowsy sentinel, he was suddenly wide awake, and his musket and voice rang instant alarm, for the bird which he had seen was a winged Indian arrow, he had been made a target for ambushed savages, eager to pick him off without alarming the party which he guarded. A large force of Indians had crept into the morass during the night, with the hope of cutting off the laborers and the party of support. The sentinels alarm shot and masked them, whooping like discovered fiends. They flew from their covert upon the unarmed laborers, shot and tomahawked those within reach, and sent the others in panic flight to the fort. Captain Little and his band flew to the rescue and checked the pursuit of the savages by hasty volleys, but soon found themselves so pressed by superior numbers that the whole party was in danger of being surrounded and slain. In this extremity Captain Little sent a messenger to General Lyman, imploring instant aid. He failed to obtain it. The overcautious commander, filled with the idea that the whole French and Indian army was at hand, drew in his outposts with nervous haste, shut the gates of the fort, and left the little band to its fate. Fortunately, the volleys of musketry had reached the ears of Major Putnam, on his island outpost. Immediately afterwards his scouts brought him word that Captain Little was surrounded by Indians, and in imminent danger of destruction. Without an instant's hesitation the brave Putnam plunged into the water, shouting to his men to follow him, and waded to the shore. This reached, they dashed hastily towards the scene of the contest. Their route led them past the walls of the fort, on whose parapet stood the alarmed commander. Halt! cried General Lyman, come into the fort, the enemy is an overwhelming force, we can spare no more men, to these words, or similar ones, 
spoken by General Lyman. Putnam returned a vague reply, intended for an apology, but having more the tone of a defiance. Discipline and military authority must stand aside when brave men were struggling with ruthless savages. Without waiting to hear the general's response to his apology, the gallant partisan dashed on, and in a minute or two more had joined the party of regulars, who were holding their ground with difficulty. On them, cried Putnam, they will shoot us down here. Forward, we must rout them out from their ambush. His words found a responsive echo in every heart. With loud shouts the whole party charged impetuously into the morass, and in a minute were face to face with the concealed savages. This sudden onslaught threw the Indians into a panic. They broke and fled in every direction, hotly pursued by their revengeful foes, numbers of them being killed in the flight. The chase was not given up until it had extended miles into the forest. Triumphantly then the victors returned to the fort, Putnam alone among them expecting reprimand. He had never before disobeyed the orders of his superior. He well knew the rigidity of military discipline and its necessity. Possibly General Lyman might not be content with a simple reprimand, but might order a court-martial. Putnam entered the fort, not fully at ease in his mind. As it proved, he had no occasion for anxiety. The general recognized that alarm had led him too far. He welcomed the whole party with hearty commendation, and chose quite to forget the fact that Major Putnam was guilty of a flagrant disregard of orders, in view of the fact of more immediate importance to himself, that his daring subaltern had saved him from public reprobation for exposing a brave party to destruction. It was not long after the scene that Putnam took the leading part in another memorable affair, in which his promptitude, energy, and decision had become historical. The barracks within the fort took fire. Twelve feet from them stood the magazine, containing three hundred barrels of powder. The fort and its defenders were in imminent danger of being blown to atoms. Putnam who still occupied his island outpost, saw the smoke and flames rising, and hastened with all speed to the fort. When he reached there the barracks appeared to be doomed, and the flames were rapidly approaching the magazine. As for the garrison, it was almost in a state of panic, and next to nothing was being done to avert the danger. A glance was sufficient for